Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me now to the book of Joshua. We're in chapter 3, and we'll read all 17 verses, starting in a moment in verse 1. Joshua chapter 3 and verse 1. The Louvre is a famous museum in France where you will find some of the most valuable works of art in the world. Well, a few years ago, they had a competition, and they awarded a cash prize to the person who submitted the best answer to the following question. If a fire broke out in the Louvre and you could only save one painting, which one would it be? Most people said, well, I would save the Mona Lisa. Others said, well, I would save this painting or that painting. But the winning submission came from the man who said, I would save the painting closest to the exit. <laughs> well, guess what, folks? Courage is in short supply. That is true in the world. Unfortunately, that also seems to be true in the church. But that need not be the case. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. Courage should be the normal experience for every born-again child of God. Well, a few weeks ago, we began this series called Courage Over Fear. And last week, we talked about the courage of one woman, Rahab. Today, we're going to look at the courage of an entire nation, Israel. And in this passage, Israel is at a very common place. They are in between the promise and the fulfillment. They are out of bondage in Egypt, but they are not yet in the promised land. I find that's where a lot of Christians reside. They've been brought out of bondage to sin, but they are not yet where God really wants them to be. There's some obstacle that is in front of them that's keeping them from going there. They're facing their own Jordan, so to speak. You see, the Jordan River is an actual river that Israel literally crossed. But we're going to see that there's a sense here in which this river also stands for whatever is in between you and God's will for your life. Maybe for some of you that is a river of doubt. Maybe it is a river of weakness. Maybe it is a river of some besetting sin in your life. Maybe for you that river is some obstacle, some opposition, some impossibility that you are facing. Well, 40 years prior, God had commanded Israel to go into the promised land, but you remember they refused to go because they lacked faith. But finally, we come to Joshua chapter 3, and it is time. It's time for Israel to cross over in faith. And they're standing in front of the Jordan River. It's that last barrier before them. So as we read this story, we're going to see some keys to having the courage to cross over whatever that river is, whatever that barrier is that keeps you from being where God wants you to be in your life. And first of all, I want you to notice four key moments. I want you to notice a time to seek God's presence. It all starts with a time to seek God's presence. Look at verse 1. 
Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. It says Joshua rose early in the morning. I can't help but think that he rose early in the morning because he understood the magnitude of what was about to take place. He knew that he needed to pray and he needed to be in a place spiritually where he could hear from God. But it wasn't just Joshua who needed to seek the Lord. The Bible says that Joshua led the people. It was about 10 miles from Acacia Grove uh, to the banks of the Jordan River. The Bible says that they lodged there. Now, some of you in this room, you've been to the Jordan River. Scholars uh, generally agree that today the Jordan River is a shell of its former self. Many of those waters have been siphoned off. It's been regulated. But this river was much, much larger in biblical days. Furthermore, down in verse 15, we're told that the river was at flood stage. It's possible that the Jordan River at this point would have been a mile across. Meanwhile, you have the Israelites who've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They don't know anything about river crossings, much less a river like the mighty Jordan. Look at verse 2. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. I want you to imagine that you are camping there on the east side of the Jordan River, and before you is a river that is too wide and it's too strong for anyone to even think about swimming across. There are no bridges, there are no supplies to build what would have to be an armada of boats to cross it. And God places them there for three whole days. Why three days? Because the people of God needed to come face to face with the challenge that was before them. They needed to understand that it was not humanly possible for a million or more people to cross that river at that point at that time. They needed three days just to see it and think about it for it to sink in the fact that unless God intervened, that river was not going to be crossed. I want you to skip down to verse 5 and notice something very specific that Joshua tells them to do. And Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. They had three whole days just to stare at that river and the impossibility of them humanly crossing it on their own. And so Joshua addresses the people, and we think he's going to give them a little pep talk, right? Notice what he does not say. He does not say, gear up, sharpen your swords, polish your shield, gather your courage. No, he says to the people, sanctify yourselves because the Lord will do wonders. That word sanctify, what does that word mean? Well, you know, the first time we see that word in Scripture is in creation, in Genesis, when God sanctified the seventh day. And He made it holy. And He set it apart. He blessed it. He said, this day is going to be different from all of the other days. Well, that's what Joshua 
is telling the people to do with their lives. And he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about people who've already been saved, but being in right relationship with God. To sanctify yourself in this case really includes two things. First, it means separating yourself from sin. That means examining your life closely. That means dealing with unconfessed sin, wherever it might be. That means repenting anywhere at any point in your life uh, that it does not line up with God's Word. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's still true today. But to sanctify yourself also means drawing near to God. It means spending time in prayer and meditating on God's Word. It means reflecting on God's goodness and His faithfulness, His holiness and His love. And notice Joshua tells the people to do this not for five minutes, not for one hour. He wants them to take an entire day devoted to this before they cross over. You see, God is going to dry the river. Yes, God's going to perform a miracle. But for whom is God going to do this? Only for a sanctified people. A lot of people want to see God move, but they don't want to sanctify themselves. I wonder how many times we stare at our own Jordan. God is willing to part the waters God is willing to do wonders on our behalf, but we're not willing to turn from sin and seek God's presence in our lives. Folks, you can't skip this and expect to see God work powerfully on your behalf. There must be this time for seeking God's presence. Joshua tells the people, sanctify yourselves. But we also see a time for following God's lead. A time for following God's lead. Look at verse 3. And they commanded the people saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. You will find that the ark of the covenant is mentioned 16 times in this story, which goes through Joshua chapters 3 and 4. 16 times. So this is a very significant part of the story. The ark, you'll recall, was this large box, this large chest, which included three things. It included those stone tablets on which were written, uh, was written the law of God. It included that jar of manna, which represented the provision of God. It included Aaron's rod, which uh, was a symbol of the power of God. Now, you put all of that together, the Ark of the Covenant was the visible symbol of the invisible God among the people. And by the way, we'll also find, the more you study it, that it's also a picture of Christ. Because it was made of acacia wood, which was a picture of Jesus' humanity. It was also covered in gold, making it a picture of his divinity. But for 40 years, Israel 
had been led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But we come to Joshua chapter 3, and all of a sudden, uh, this is about to change. There's a historic change taking place. As of this point, God tells the people to follow not a cloud, not fire, but the ark. He doesn't just give them directions and send them on their way. He says, no, follow me. Follow the ark. When the ark moves, you move. When it stops, you stop. When it goes to the left, you go to the left. When it goes to the right, you go to the right. And notice something else about the way they're going to follow it in verse 4. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before." Now, scholars will debate exactly how uh, long a cubit was in Bible days, but we, we believe that this would have been roughly half a mile that the people were to remain behind the Ark of the Covenant as they were following it. And I want you to notice, they were to remain close enough to see it and follow it, but far enough away so that they would not get ahead of it. God said, don't come near it so that you will know the way that you should go. It sounds as if God's saying, I'm going to lead you where you would never go unless you were certain that I was leading you. At times in your life, God will call you to go in a certain direction. God may call you to go somewhere you wouldn't even think about going unless you were absolutely certain that, yes, God was the one leading you. And I want you to notice they still don't know at this point where the ark is going to take them or how all of this is going to come about. They're just told that they must be willing to follow. And I want you to notice this last statement. For you have not passed this way before. You understand what the implication there is, right? You have not passed this way before, but God has. And it is a great encouragement for us to know that God has been where you are going. You will never cross a river in life. You will never pass through a valley. You will never go through a trial in which God did not go before you. And if God went before you, that means God has already prepared the way for you. But we must be willing to follow where God leads. I can tell you on a personal uh, level. The greatest mistakes I've ever made in my life have been those times where I did not stop and take the time to really make sure that God was leading and I was following where he led me. I can also tell you on a personal level, there's never been a time in my life where I desperately needed God's direction, but he was not willing to provide it. Well, there's a time for seeking God's presence. There's a time here for following God's lead. But this next point, I believe, is the most important of the four that I want to talk to you about this morning. There's a time to act on God's promises. 
There's a time to act on God's promises. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Man, wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall, so to speak, when that conversation took place? When Joshua told the priest what God wanted them to do, take the ark, carry it, walk that way. When you get to the river, when you get to the edge, here's the command. Stand in the Jordan. God wants us to do what? Stand in the river. You're talking about that river. That's right. This was an act of faith. Because they automatically knew if they did what God was was telling them to do, one of two things would happen. They would get to the edge of the Jordan River and either God would move or they would drown. And there was no third option. Look at what verse 9 says. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. We'll see what that was about next week in chapter 4. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. Now, you'll recall that when Israel crossed the Red Sea, God didn't do it this way. Because God does not always work the same way, even in similar situations. But that time, when they crossed the Red Sea, God first parted the waters, and then Israel moved. But this time, God tells the priests to move, and he promises them that when they get to the waters, he will respond by parting the waters. Now, I personally believe that God did it this way this time because he was teaching them a lesson. Simply put, obedience before blessings. First, obey my command. First, march toward the Jordan. When it gets closer, keep walking. When you're almost there, keep walking. When your feet get wet, keep walking, because that is when I will do it. You know, many times in our lives, we're waiting for God to move 
before we'll obey, and God is waiting for us to obey before He will move, and then we wonder why nothing happens. All of their waiting, all of their praying, all of their meditating, all of them sanctifying themselves, none of that could take the place of them moving forward in faith, acting in faith on the promises of God. There came that moment, starting with the priests, but going down to all the people, where every single person had to decide whether or not they were going to put one foot in front of the other. And brothers and sisters, there must come a time when we act and we put one foot in front of the other and do what God has called us to do. Many times we're like this couple that I read about. They held and they still hold the world record for the longest engagement in history. There's a man in Mexico by the name of Octavio Guillen. He proposed marriage to Adriana Martinez. He asked her to marry her. She said yes in the year 1902. But they kept putting the marriage off. Maybe they couldn't afford it. Maybe they just weren't ready there was always an excuse. But finally, they got married in 1969. They were engaged for 67 years. They were both 15 years old when he popped the question, and they were 82 years old when they finally got married. I'm afraid to ask my wife if she would have waited for me that long because I think I know the answer. <laughs> but spiritually speaking, sometimes we go through an awfully long engagement. We know what God wants us to do. And we wait and we make excuses and we drag our feet, but eventually, there comes that moment when we must act in faith. Like Israel, we must be willing to finally put one foot in front of another. Because if you're not willing to get your feet wet, you're not going to see God work powerfully in your life. You've got to decide that you're going to act on the promises of God and trust God to do what He says He will do. Now, if we're going to cross over, there must be a time when you act on God's promises. And here's the final moment. This is the one we really like. A time to experience God's power. A time to experience God's power. All too often, we want to start here. We want to skip the part about seeking the Lord and following the Lord and trusting in the Lord, acting in faith. We just want to experience God's power, but it doesn't work that way. Look at verse 14. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priest who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. 
that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeraton. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. You know, God could have led Israel across the Jordan River at any other place. God could have led Israel across the Jordan when it was not flooded. And I find it very interesting that God waited until the waters were the deepest to lead them through it. He did it that way so there would be no doubt that he was the one who did it. He did it that way so that he would get all of the glory. And sometimes, you know what? God allows the floods of our lives to build up. He allows the difficulties to get to that point where they are the deepest. He allows the trials to get to that point that they are the hardest. And then he acts because that way his power is displayed and our faith grows. But sure enough, the priests, they did what God said. They carried the ark. When they reached the waters, by faith, they put one foot out. They got that foot wet. And when they did, just like God said, the waters were stilled. They piled up. And it says the priests stood on dry ground. Some will say, well, that's not possible. That violates the laws of nature. Folks, God doesn't obey the laws of nature. The laws of nature obey God. And if you believe in God, you shouldn't have any problem believing in any of the miracles God performs in this book. But listen, there's something else that's going on here that I want you to see. The Jordan River, if you do the math, was dried up for 60 miles. You realize one mile would have been more than enough for God to lead his people through. So why did God dry up so much of the Jordan River? And why is the text so specific in telling us where the drying up started and where it ended? What is the, the meaning of all of this? What exactly is happening here? Now, watch this. The Bible says that the place where the water stopped flowing was a city called Adam. I've got a map here, and yes, it was an actual city, a city by the name of Adam. Flowing south was this river, the Jordan River. And do you know what the name Jordan means? It means judgment. And that river of judgment dried up all the way down to what our text calls the Salt Sea and is also called the Dead Sea. This happened when? When the Ark of the Covenant 
which is a picture of Jesus Christ, entered those waters. And the people who then responded in faith were spared those waters of judgment and were able to cross over into the promised land. Do you get the picture here? The waters of a river literally named Judgment stopped flowing at a town literally named Adam all the way down to a sea that is literally dead. Once again, we can't help but see here this beautiful picture of the gospel. When the first man, Adam, sinned, Adam's race fell under judgment. Those waters of judgment flow to death, eternal death and separation from God. So what did God do? He sent his only begotten son. He went before us. He entered the waters of judgment. He was judged for our sin, and therefore those waters of judgment stop flowing, and all who have faith are spared those waters and need not experience eternal death, but can now have eternal life. And because Jesus did that for us, we can cross over out of sin and into salvation, out of darkness and into light, out of bondage and into freedom. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, have I ever crossed over into the life that God has for me by placing my faith in Christ who died and rose again? It's a question only you can answer. And listen, it's a decision only you can make. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of the gospel buried here in Joshua chapter 3. God, how we thank you that every page of Scripture points us to Jesus Christ. Somehow, someway, his death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you that Jesus went before us into the waters of judgment so that those waters for us might cease that we could cross over into the promised land of eternal life, all who respond by faith. Father, I pray if there are any who, who need to do that this morning, who have never crossed over out of their sin and into salvation, that this would be that day that they call upon the name of the Lord. We pray that you would save them. And Father, I pray for everyone here, knowing that maybe there's some who, like Israel, for years were wandering in the wilderness They've been wandering. Perhaps they've been saved, but they're wandering, and they're not where you want them to be. There's some river, there's some obstacle that is in front of them. And they need to sanctify themselves, and they need to seek you, and they need to follow you. And, and there comes that point where they just need to act in faith, and whatever it is, you're calling them to do. So God, I pray that this would be that time, that, that moment when they would stop dragging their feet and say, by faith I'm going to trust in the promises of God and do what I know God's called me to do, that we would not live in fear any longer, but we would be filled with that holy courage that we receive when we make that choice to follow you wherever you lead.
So God, have your way. Help us, Lord, to take all that we've heard and apply these things to our lives this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.